Welcome to the A to Z Running Podcast, where we help runners thrive. I'm Zach, and up next, we examine motivation and the factors that make us want to do things. And after that, World of Running updates about an incredible double record and the Diamond League Finals. Glad to have you back with us once more. Certainly, apologies that Andy's voice is not entertaining your eardrums presently, because we all know that that's a preferable one to listen to as it goes anyway, but she'll be back with us again shortly. And for the moment, we've got some interesting things to discuss today. But before we get to it, remember that you need to ask your questions by going to a2zrunning.com question. Share a question anytime, any amount of questions, whenever you want. And at the end of the month, we do answer them on air as well as you know, share some thoughts with you in response to your messages as well. But the next Q&A episode is next week. So share your questions now if you've got any thoughts on your mind, a to zrunning.com slash question, and we'll be getting to them shortly. And so as long as we don't have yet a full docket already, we can throw your question in for right away to answer it right away on on the episode, which will be great. Now, speaking of interacting with you all, uh, I, w- I ran a race just recently that just so happens to be many of you were in fact there, um, knowing this because you told me so. And so I always appreciate that. I enjoy that. But uh, let's give a quick shout out because I was in line talking with someone and uh, Bruce introduced himself and said, hey, I'm a listener. And I just wanted to uh, say, you know, I good to interact with you here and see you in person and appreciate the things that we're doing. So thanks, Bruce. Uh, always good to, to please always feel free to stop us when we're doing whatever the thing is we're doing and, and have exactly that kind of conversation because it's loads of fun for us and we always enjoy it. So good to meet you, Bruce, and the many others as well. Now, as I mentioned, we're going to be talking about motivation here, and I have to say I am terribly excited about the topic because of the connections and implications it has for runners. So let's go ahead and get right on to our conversation about what motivates us. All right, here's your background on the topic. So uh, if you have to just listen to Zach for a long period of time and and not have uh, the benefit of Andy and Zach, then uh, it would be good at least to hear Zach talk about something uh, that he's excited to talk about, uh, which may, I guess, be any time I talk about running. But in this topic in particular, this is one that has uh, captivated my attention in multiple domains. Um, so first, a background on the topic of motivation at all. So I, I work as well with educators. Um, I work with a company that supports kindergarten through, I mean, K-12 public education predominantly and um, helping teachers with the things that teachers do. Uh, So now that being the case, my colleagues and I have spent a lot of time talking with educators about student engagement and motivation and all of those things. (laughs) You you can guess why, because that's important. Um, As it goes, the, the company, we developed a, um, a kind of framework for student engagement, engagement. Um, but in exploring those topics and developing that framework and researching the concept of motivation, you find in these things that while much of it has been written specifically about education, it happens to be stuff that has much broader appeal. 
And so we'll we'll always notice in these kinds of things that it's like, yeah, this you could say student, but you could replace the word student with person just as easily people. And it's uh, and, and it applies pretty much equally, whatever age you are, whatever the thing is you're doing. And I find as I'm thinking about these topics um, in terms of running and the things we notice about running, um, that it, there are some intimate connections that I think have been helpful to many runners um, who have identified them. And so I want to try to basically lay out an approach here to thinking about what motivates us and how we can use that to our advantage. I'll talk about why here soon. Um, understanding that why these things motivate us and then as well what pitfalls to avoid potentially. So that being the case, I have six areas, and yes, this is a this is poached directly from that framework for student engagement that uh, my company had had developed and uses in our work with teachers. And so, certainly, if you want to know more about that specifically, this is not hidden information. You can go to our company's website if you'd like to. It's cbdconsulting.com, company's communications by design. And so. I welcome you to do that if you'd like to pursue it further. Also, these ideas aren't invented by a small group of education consultants. Um, they come from you know the work around uh, such individuals as like Daniel Pink, who has written in the business sphere predominantly, although he writes about you know human stuff, which is not just business associated, among many other things um, and many other sources. So if that's the case, I'll talk about some things here that you will find all over the place in the intellectual sphere of ideas people write about. Okay, so there are six that I wanted to share here and connect them to our experiences as runners and especially connect them to our challenges and our struggles that we tend to face. So these things make us move. Credible and trusted authority is one. And we could replace the word authority with support, and it applies equally. Sense of belonging is the next. Internalized purpose and value is the third. A sense of autonomy or freedom, personal freedom, is the fourth. And then fifth, belief in success. And sixth, a sense of deliberate improvement. So those six areas, I'm going to break them down each one at a time here now. They tend to define um, a kind of summary of what you see when you read about the topic of motivation in general. And there certainly are some overlapping ideas here within internally. There are also a number of things that you might say, oh, you're missing something. And of course, I have no doubt that is true. Um, these things are not intended to be all comprehensive and all encompassing, um, but rather a good general approach, I think, and captures the majority of things that relate to the concept of motivation. So how do we then tackle this? I'm going to go through each one, one at a time. I'm going to talk about how this connects to our motivation, but also why that relates to the things we choose to do and the pitfalls, the things we should then take away from that. So here's the idea with this first one, credible and trusted authority or support. Um, the idea here is that this, these are the coaches, right? There's no surprise that coaches have been able to motivate athletes over the years in incredible ways to do incredible things, uh, to engage with incredible struggles and challenges. And so you might you might say, well, like a great coach can get athletes to do or, or attempt to do anything, right? It's, and that 
that could be historically proven out in many instances. But the idea is is more nuanced than that as well, because um, I think that there's there's a sense of I want someone to be able to direct me or guide me that I believe in, someone whom I believe in, and um, as well that I, I trust. So I you are credible and trustworthy to me. And then it, certainly we could say it, it also helps to like feel a personal connection too. Um, so this it's not just that the person is credible and I trust the person, but that the person also like knows me. I want to kind of feel known as well. So if that's all true, um, th this is what makes a coach valuable to runners or to anyone ultimately. But this is what makes a coach valuable is that they have some credibility that they that I do trust them. I trust them in a general sense and I trust them with my endeavors because if I'm going to do a thing that someone else tells me to do or suggests that I do, um, that I am entrusting something of my freedom, which we'll come back to in a little bit here, to someone else in a, in a way. So what's fascinating here about this is um, it's not that the person's telling me something that I don't already know. And that's what's so interesting here is you will find as you get out of the like um, formative years, you know, out of your student years and into your kind of more adult years, that you may still find a coach to be valuable. And I, I say you may because most people do. <laughs> and most, you know, like professional sports teams, for instance. Why would a professional sports team have a coach when the players are like, you know, the best in the world, right? Isn't it likely that they could just figure it out themselves? Well, they still have coaches. Um, the same thing goes with in, in any of these spheres. I could probably come up with the things that the coach is going to tell me. I could probably predict, as a matter of fact, every word the coach will say about what should I do or why should I do it anything like that. And yet we find that when someone I trust or find credible, uh, feel a connection to when that person tells me to do the thing, I am more likely to do it than it, if I were to think of it, think it up myself, but not just that I'm more likely to do it, but I am more likely to engage with it in, um, a more, a more motivated manner. So not just do it, but do it earnestly. Uh, might be a way to say that. That is interesting. <laughs> um, it's, it's fascinating. And, uh, and why so many spheres of life have taken advantage of the concept uh, to try to broadcast the idea that, you know, there's a coach for everything, essentially. And, and there is. And that's not a terrible, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Um, I believe it is, in fact, a good thing. I think, I think what we see in that is this desire. And there's something deeper than just a conscious desire. And I don't know, I haven't looked into this more thoroughly, but there's some kind of like instinctual sense uh, of order that comes with willfully subjecting ourselves to a trusted other. So when we do that, we feel good about the thing we're doing or better potentially, even if it was the same thing we were going to do otherwise. So now that being the case, there are some concerns potentially here too. Um, you know, the, there's there's things like the uh, the seriousness fallacy, which I'm just kind of making that up, I think, right now. Um, but it's it's a real thing. I just don't know if it has a term for it. But it's like you know the seriousness fallacy, which is well, I I'm only going to do that when I'm serious about it. And if I'm I'm not serious about it, then I shouldn't do that because you know I don't want to waste the person's time or I don't want to um, like I see it. it 
it makes it feel like the thing is more than I want it to be. You know, I'm not really that serious about it. So having a, someone else to work with, it seems like it's too much. Um, what, what's interesting about that is that the principle of the coach is not um, for me to do the thing at the level of the coach's, you know, inspiration or interest, but rather for the coach to be able to help inspire me to do what I desire in it. And so there's, there's an interesting layer there, but it's, but it is a pitfall um, that, and, and one that we probably all commonly participate in, in our minds at some point or another. And I also want to just mention this idea of the convenience mentality is always a challenge here too. Um, most of the time we, what makes us feel like we trust someone and what makes us feel like someone is credible is when that person aligns with our own thinking, which can be a great way to evaluate someone. But at the same time, it's also, you know, it, it's just more convenient it, it, and the convenience makes it seem appealing. Um, it's inconvenient to us to have someone tell us to do something that we didn't want to do uh, initially, you know, and so that, that can pose kind of some cognitive dissonance and challenges. But at the same time, we enter into a situation where if I'm going to trust someone to advise me, um, I need to make sure that I'm willing to engage with that person, even if it's not necessarily aligned with the thing that I thought before. And that's not to say blindly following someone's suggestions. That's never a good idea either, but there's something somewhere in the middle. Okay. So that that's the first area. And you can see now what I'm trying to do here with these topics is see why these things motivate us and what that might inform. I'll kind of summarize it then at the end in terms of informing action. Okay. So the next one was the sense of belonging. This comes from um, many, many sources. And in our work researching motivation, we found this everywhere. It's all over the place. The idea, I think, in a summarizing statement is people like me do things like this. Or maybe people like me care about things like this. And that that's saying two things. That statement is saying two things. First, um, it's something about me, my identity. And I'm identifying with something here. And then it's something about others and what they're doing and how I feel like my self-identity meshes with that thing about the others. Now, this is huge because what, just like the idea of coaches is a kind of ubiquitous concept, teams is also a kind of ubiquitous concept. And it is beyond a shadow of doubt true that a team atmosphere can produce results for individuals that they could not have produced on their own. We see that in all walks of life in all domains. Um, and, and why is that? <laughs> There's many, many layers involved in it. But what we want to try to draw from this is the idea of why that motivates me is because I'm a part of a thing. And when I feel like I'm a part of something, I am more likely to be motivated toward that end, whatever the thing is we're moving toward. Um, it's huge. It, it cannot be understated, I don't think. And some of it comes from things like there's layers involved in this, right? Interdependence is a huge piece of it. Like I can depend on you. You can depend on me. We can do more together then because of that. I feel like we're a part of this thing together because of that interdependence. Um, and, 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 many others. I, th I think there's something to the idea of like, we need each other as well. That's one of the reasons why coaches in a team environment do so much work to try to show that, that 
not self-reliance. It's not about you. You can't do it on your own. You need each other. Um, now, as individuals in an individual sport, largely, um, this is a kind of fascinating uh, fascinating anomaly because it's still true. The team environment still has this huge effect on our individual motivation. And yet, even though it is a kind of team environment, we're still pretty much just doing all 100% of the thing ourselves. So it's, it, I, I'm not doing a part of it and you're doing a part of it, which is kind of like true collaboration, right? True cooperation in a sense is that we have different parts and pieces that make up the whole. In running, we're still all doing all the thing ourselves. So that is strange, right? It is not, it doesn't jive well with uh, other applications of the concept. And yet the outcomes um, from this idea of a sense of belonging are the same, largely the same. So I do think that um, there's, there's some credence to why do we see like these waves of just incredible athletes um, coming from like the same club training group, the same nation, the same area. Um, I, I think that this is a huge piece in that puzzle. And, and I'm not the only one who thinks that. And so you'll see things like um, historically this has happened quite a bit in the last decade or so in running uh, situations where you have this one training group and it was, you know, the Nike Oregon project before Salazar got just totally off the deep end with all the crazy stuff he was doing and, and uh, everything fell apart. Uh, but the Nike Oregon project was, you know, basically they were, they were considered to be the best group of athletes in the world for track and field. Um, and, and because they, in many senses, were basically the best club team uh, in the world. Now, what's interesting with a situation like that. Okay, so let me, let me track it a little bit further. So you have the Nike Oregon project. You have the Nike Bowerman Track Club, um, which similarly has has been and in some ways you could say it still has this kind of aura of that the the on athletics club dathan's group currently um has this kind of aura right now the nn running team which is kipchoge's crew and the nn running team isn't even it's entirely heterogeneous it, it they're spread out all over the world they have training camps in all sorts of different locations and yet the idea of being a part of the nn running team most people on that team have achieved some kind of incredibly great thing. And most of the time they did so after becoming a part of the team. And so why, you know, what's going on here? Because these people don't even like oftentimes live near each other or train together. And yet there's still, there's, there's something here. And so what it is, is it's the sense of like, I'm a part of that thing. And this thing does this stuff. So you show up at a start line of a race and it's like, I'm wearing the On Athletics Club shirt. That means we're amazing runners. It just means that. And so I'm going to run amazing, right? Um, now, that we see that over time. You've got this example where you've got a college cross-country team that has won three national championships. And it just seems like everyone who goes there after that is just way better than they should be. Like, they just, they're incredibly successful. How does that happen when runners go great runners go to other places and just see like you know predictable success um and it's because this idea of like we are incredible we are great and so we do great things and so when we feel that sense um and it doesn't have to be greatness it can be um like engaging with the struggle in a sense and so we are willing to and able to achieve certain ends better because of this sense of people like me do things like this and i'm a 
part of this thing. It's huge, huge. Okay, so now there are some pitfalls here, though, because in our own minds, things like imposter syndrome are really poisonous um, to this concept because the idea of I don't really feel like I belong in this thing. Like I see other people doing that and they're like serious and I'm not serious. It goes back to that seriousness fallacy I said earlier. Uh, but the imposter syndrome is that sense of um, I feel like I'm treading on someone else's ground and and, I, and it's not comfortable for me. So part of it is like, how can I identify this goes back to the two two parts of this, right? Something about me fits in something about this. How can I make that connection? And that's where we talk with runners a lot about things like, um, we mentioned it just recently on the podcast, I think it was maybe last week, doing drills before a race, right? Like going out and doing like this dynamic activation drill set. You just, you just don't see that many people doing that. And one of the reasons when I talk with people is it's like, well, you know, because when you see someone doing that, then it's like, oh, that person's really serious, or that person's really competitive and and I'm not. And so it just feels wrong to do it. And it's like, that's crazy because you are, are trying to achieve the same end as any of the other people in the race, which is I'm trying to achieve some kind of goal for myself in this instance. Sometimes it's, you know, performance goals. Sometimes it's uh, just in, engaging with this challenge in some capacity. But whatever the, the intent there. It makes very little sense to think, uh, well, I shouldn't do that thing because I'm not like that person. Um, because in running, we're essentially, the, one of the things we love about this sport is that we're all the same. I can line up on a race next to Elliot Kipchoge and I'm doing the same thing he's doing. I'm obviously not doing it as fast as he is, but we're doing it at the same time in the same way, fundamentally. And so... That's a huge, that's a huge piece. And I think that there's, that's one of those where when you can create, and I, pr I probably intended to say this earlier, but um, you've got situations where like a whole society seems to be able to achieve this sense of belonging. And it's, you know, from a young age, kids feel like this, you know, they're a part of that thing because that's the thing that their people do. Right. Um, and so that's where kind of like culture, you could say culture develops out of this concept. Um, we build culture by the identifying the things that we all do and then kind of homogenizing it. Um, in a sense. So anyway, that's <laughs> totally getting off the point, but when when we see that, it's no surprise that um, it, it tends to be something that can develop at a very young age and it just sticks with you. And it's an incredible thing. Um, that's also one of the things that, you know, when you show up at a race event and your people are there doing the thing often, often for most people that that is especially motivating. OK, so. um Yes. Oh, the one other thing I did want to mention, though, because running is so individual, um, there is a risk here that comes with the overemphasis of the group and forgetting or underemphasizing the need for individual adaptation because we are not fundamentally uh, benefiting the same way from the same stimuli as someone else. And so we need something nuanced differently than every person around us. And that's important because we get a lot of runners um, with ending up with a lot of troubles like injuries or burnout or um, dissatisfaction because 
we're not doing the thing we need. We're doing the thing that others are doing. And so there's a balance. There's a balance there. Okay, next one here is uh, in this idea of internalized purpose and value. And I think this one's actually fairly simple and straightforward. The thing has to be important to me. Um, it, it can be important in two ways, fundamentally. Like globally, it's just a valuable thing. And personally, it's important. And so I said this earlier, like with the society side of it, um, where society feels like a thing is important, I am more likely to engage with it um, and am more likely to find it personally valuable as well. The threshold for importance is much lower when society values it. So that's where you see cultures around the world that uh, distance running, for instance, um, in some nations is like the thing that's most prized. You know, if you can win a marathon majors, you're a, a national celebrity, right? In the United States, nobody knows the names of this year's world marathon majors winners. Nobody. Uh, anyone outside of the sphere of people who are seriously following running know a thing about it, which, you know, then there are other countries where it's like that makes the front page news no matter what, you know, all the time. So in those situations, a person's more likely to feel like this thing is important. An internalized sense of value is more likely. Um, now, what happens there is when I do feel like this thing is more valuable, is more important, then I tend to be more willing to engage with struggle within that. Um, and and there's and and it's just it's sometimes in a sense you could say it's easier. The struggle is less. Uh, for that reason. However, there's also a question about ordered priorities here too. And so you'll get situations where um, in general, something like sports and athletics is a much higher priority, broadly speaking. And so it, it then is in a sense, um, just very seamless for it to be personally important to me. But you get other situations where something like athletics and sports uh, or, or specifically this sport of running is not very important. For instance, in the United States culture, which is where many of our listeners are currently listening. Um, so if, if that's the case, then when I try to make a thing like that more important than the threshold for society in general, that creates a kind of dissonance in my life. And it is very difficult. And so I have to feel that sense of like the personal sense of purpose and value meaningfulness in the thing um, because it doesn't tend to come externally there where in other situations it's just much easier so one of the, one of the thoughts here is that um, where there's a kind of ebb and flow in motivation um, rather in life priorities it tends to produce uh, this sense of like, you know, it's more important to me at some times and less important to me at other times. Um, is That's an important consideration here because it should be the case. That's, that, in fact, is a healthy way to view the value of something like running. Um, you know, when, when my child is due and uh, has been born and uh, taking some leave from work to try to help care for, you know, whatever, uh, my home, my family and all of the above. Um, and so when that's the case, you know, running takes a little bit less importance and value, um, where we see, uh, some challenges here. And we talk about the, um, talk about the pitfalls a little bit with something like this, but, uh, where we see the challenges here is like that out of balance, uh, prioritization 
I'm holding this thing as more important than it should be in my life tends to negatively affect everything, not just this thing. So it's that's difficult. Um, and there's another side of this where if I feel like everything's important, you know, this running is important, but this other thing's important and this other hobby is important and, and too many important things. Well, I guess the quote, I don't know exactly what the quote is, but if everything is important, then nothing is important. <laughs> like it's, if nothing, if there's no difference in value, then all of it is worthless. <laughs> it's not actually true. Obviously it's not all worthless, but it all may be as good as worthless if none of it's more or less important. And so in that sense, um, everything of high importance is just as bad as, uh, as n n I don't care about anything. Like nothing's valuable to me. Um, now I should say too, there's, there's some evidence for in that sense, um, cause it's exhausting too to just have everything be this high priority. And I have to like aspire toward, um, huge commitments in all these areas. Well, there's some evidence for, uh, the idea of rest periods in general, in, in terms of the degree of value in a thing, like I should have a period of time where that thing is of lesser importance. And that's one of the reasons why things like breaks for school are so good, but also think about things like vacations from work. Vacations from work are very mentally healthy. <laughs> I should not. And so, um, you know, it, well, there's, there's a lot to be said about this, uh, culturally, historically, uh, because you could say like, uh, Jewish tradition dating back to, um, the time of Moses, where you started to get commands like, uh, you know, take one day off every seven days and that day off, you should do nothing like no work at all. And in Jewish tradition, that included things like don't pick up your bedroll and carry it somewhere. Don't carry a load out of your house. Why was that? Because it's the insistence that you need a break where some of these things are not as important. And during that time, by the way, during that day off, other things were elevated to even higher importance. So it just shifted the balance in a very healthy way. Now, that's one example of what you will find in nearly every society throughout all of time and history. Um, the healthiest society is the one that understands when to go and when to stop. And so that is true for runners as well. The healthiest runner is the one who understands when it's time to go and when it's time to stop. And as Barry McGee always says, the, a break for runners is less about a physical break, although sometimes we need that, uh, but it's less about that and more about a mental break because that's the thing that we, in terms of regular breaks, we need to make sure and insist upon for ourselves. So that's what we talk about when we talk about shifting the value ebb and flow a bit. Okay. Now let's go on to autonomy. So, uh, we're about halfway done here, but these last three are very brief compared to the first three because they're easier to explain. And I think the connections are just a little bit less substantial, but they're still valuable and you'll see why sense of autonomy is this idea of, uh, we need to have enough freedom that we feel like we are the ones choosing the thing when possible. And so when I feel like someone else is making me do something, of course, I'm less likely to want to do it eagerly, earnestly. Uh, but more specifically, the idea of when I go out the door to run today, it is my choice. I'm choosing this and nothing is making me do this except for I am willing to desire to engage with it. Now that that has some nuanced limits because 
like I said earlier, we also benefit from the idea of someone else told me to do this thing and I trust that person. And so I'm going to do it. Um, but in that same moment, I should still be engaging with that as saying, uh, this person told me this is what I should do. And now because I have that in front of me as the thing I should do, now I'm taking it up and choosing to do it. That's the best way to interpret how the autonomy piece fits well with other things. I'm in a society where running is highly valuable. And so I do it just because that's what everyone around me does. Eh, that's not great. But if I'm in a society where running is highly valuable and I am then likewise going to choose to engage with it, now that's a good spot to be. So we enter into the thing willingly. We're more likely to engage with the challenges willingly because we believe that is our choice when we're doing so. Um, this is also, by the way, why the obligatory runner almost always is accompanied by severe declines in motivation, ultimately fulfillment. And so the obligatory runner is the one who says, I have to do this thing. It's not that I choose to. It's not that I get to. I have to. And that's not good. Um, pit pitfalls around autonomy in addition to the obligatory runner is the idea of too much freedom uh, with too little structure. Uh, I choose to do this thing. And yeah, today, maybe I will, maybe I won't. It's my choice. I can do what I want. Usually over time devolves into decay, um, decays into not good things because what, what it is there, the too much freedom scenario is the one where competing priorities will always appear in every situation in life. There's always something else I could do with my time and my efforts. And we should always assume that the choice to not do this thing is easier than the choice to do it. And so if that's the case, then I need to make sure that I build enough structure into my experience. Uh, we often say it with runners is we want to give ourselves as few choices as possible when we're in periods of um, high pressure, like in life in general. But we also want to have enough freedom and flexibility so that we still feel like it is something we are willingly taking up. Some balance. You notice the balance is kind of the key here. How about the, the the fifth one, belief in success? This is the idea here now. We desire to believe that we can do a thing well. Um, that's huge. It cannot, cannot be overstated how important it is to think that I'm doing something well when I'm doing it. Uh, well is obviously defined success is defined individually um, and almost everything it ought to be in, in a sense we need to have general benchmarks as well because my individual sense of success um, should not contrast the reality of the thing you know there are true things in running like um, you know moving forward right so like basic truths in running um, I shouldn't try to define success in a thing that is contrary to the concept of running um, but in so far as it, it, it aligns within the sport, um, I want to feel like I can be successful. Achievement across all of the stuff, when you read about these, these concepts, achievement is one of the most consistent predictors of positive motivation. So when a person is successful, that person is more likely to feel motivated, right? So in some ways, you can see this actually in writings like... Um, the Franklin Covey Group's book, Four Disciplines of Execution, they have, in principle, the idea that uh, achievement predates engagement. So if if I want someone to be engaged with something, I have to show them that they are successful, and then they will be engaged. Now, many would argue that they actually have it backwards, 
that um, if you believe you can succeed, you'll be engaged and then you'll achieve success. But the reality here is they're both true and <laughs> they're both right. And so what we see then in running is I need to set goals and objectives that are achievable benchmarks that are achievable in, in a window of time Go back to things like the SMART goals, right? Um, those are valuable ways to think about these things. But the four disciplines of execution has another layer to it that's helpful too, where they talk about lag measures and lead measures. The lag I've talked about this on the podcast before. So the lag measure is like the end result, performance, times, results, uh, place in the race, those kinds of things. Lead measures are the things you do to reach those results. And so that's like, you know, putting in the training, putting in the mileage and the volume, running uh, quality workouts and uh, in, in intuitive based, you know, training, all that kind of stuff is more like the lead measure. And so what we find lead measures, uh, correct lead measures, accurate lead measures produce the desired lag results. Um, and so we then to achieve this sense of success, we need to basically be able to set a benchmark that's like, Here's a thing I can do, and that will be a line of achievement for me. Um, when I believe that I can accomplish that, I'm more likely to pursue it, right? And so when we set goals that we know are things that are achievable, that's why we say things like, well, I, you know, it's great to have goals like run this time in a race, but that's not really the thing you want out of it. it of course it is. But what you really want is to be able to finish the race saying, I did as much as I could do that day. All I gave everything, I could not have done better. Um, and know that truly, which is impossible. You can't ever know that truly fully. Um, but in order to do that, the goal needs to be a thing that in, in, in the spirit of how these things work is essentially something we can achieve every single time. We have to set a goal that we know is a thing we can do successfully. Okay, so that that's... <laughs> That's kind of the pitfalls that I'm getting into there. Um, also, aside from unrealistic goals, there's this idea of artificial pressure. Um, success is, you know, this thing that I'm I'm creating for myself, and uh, it it creates pressure that is not really truly like it's not true that success can only be that thing. I can be successful in other ways. Um, a lot of times for runners, this tends to happen when it's like. Um, like coming back from injuries or um, other kinds of disruptions where it's like, well, now I can't be successful because uh, I can't achieve that time, right? Well, that that's kind of crazy because clearly you're coming back from an injury or some kind of major disruption. Clearly your expectation shouldn't be, I need to be my best possible fitness ever uh, soon. <laughs> like that, that's, that doesn't make any sense. So you're creating artificial pressure uh, with an expectation like that. And there's many other ways we do it. The last one here is the sense of deliberate improvement. And I like this one. I'm personally, I'm very invested in this concept because of the nuance here, which I'll express. Um, seeing progress increases motivation. And so that's the, the, it goes together with the success one. But here, we don't have to achieve our end result yet. But if I see that I'm moving toward it, I, I'm, I'm going, I'm moving. I'm inspired. Um, it's especially true when I see the connection between the choices that I make and the improvement. So that goes back to the lead measures, right? If I do these things, if I, if I choose to do these things, 
I know that that choice I made, those things I did, moved me in this positive direction. That's really important. But there's a third layer to it, not just that I see my choices connect with this, but also that I understand what it means to give um, to give quality effort. So the, the lead measures, it's not just do the thing, but what are the things that are of most positive effect and the be best choices to yield the best possible results. And this is huge because um, we see things like the idea of unwise effort uh, that can demoralize. And the, the way the one author puts it um, is essentially it's like, you know, it's terrible, terrible situation that a student would get in, you know, in school where they said, I tried so hard and I failed. And that's, you know, the worst thing you can tell someone when they fail is uh, at least you tried. <laughs> yeah, but that doesn't, that's no consolation because clearly my effort wasn't good because it didn't help me. So instead there's, there's this principle of if we give, not just try, but try in the right kinds of ways, then we are more likely to see improvement. And that's very important. Um, I'm working so hard in training and I'm not seeing the results. Uh, I did all the right things. You know, I read that book and all the workouts they said to do, and I did all of it and I didn't achieve the results. What am I doing wrong? That that's demoralizing for us. Um, and can, by the way, create that perception of this thing is impossible. I can't do it. I did. I followed all the best things because I read the book or because I did the thing that the coach told me to do and, but I didn't achieve the results. So I, it must not be possible for me. And that's a terrible state of mind because it's one, not true. Um, and two, there's always more involved in it than just doing all the quote right things. And even in a situation where I'm like working with a coach, and this is a good example of things that we talk about with our athletes all the time. We say, okay, we're going to try these things. Doesn't always work out when we're working with an athlete. Doesn't always produce the desired results. Doesn't always end well. And so a big piece in the puzzle is let's look at what you did and let's talk about why it didn't work. And how can we do it in a way that will work better next time? Now, the beauty of working with a coach who's very in touch with these things is that that coach is going to be able to have that reflection long before you reach the end. Is this thing working? Are the types of things you're doing working out for you? And if they're not, how can we adjust them now? So how can we give, in this sense, better effort, a higher quality effort to achieve that end? And so I want to see that my choices are producing progress and that I know that I'm making wise choices. Okay. So that I have just done for you. Well, everything that I know about the topic of motivation as best as I can summarize it um, and apply it to runners. That's not to suggest that I'm some kind of guru on motivation, but uh, it's a conversation I have a lot of with a lot of people. So uh, let me summarize for you then briefly. Uh, what makes us quit or what what makes what harms our forward progress motivation lack of trusted support is a big piece if i don't have that i don't have trusted support credible support um it's harder to do the thing a sense that people like me don't really do this or don't do it well if i feel that way how could i possibly want to or believe in my capacity to do the thing um how about too little purpose particularly me not meaningful to me um or it's things like, oh, I just do it to stay in shape for this thing. Or I just do it because it's, you know, it's healthy. Uh, it's not very meaningful, purposeful, which means when I hit struggle and challenge, eh, I may not 
feel like it's quite worth it. Lack of sense of autonomy. I'm doing it just because someone's pulling my arm or I'm doing it just because that's what, that's what all the people around me are doing. So I just thought I should do it too. Um, those things tend to not last through challenges and struggle. And then the last two, little or no sense of success. You know, I've been doing this all the time and I haven't hit my goals. Uh, what's up with that? Little or no improvement or the disconnect between my efforts and my progress. I'm trying so hard, but it's not happening. So within all of that, where those things are out of place or amiss, chances are that's when we find ourselves unmotivated. So this is the key. Next time you find yourself struggling, this is my encouragement to everyone listening. Next time you find yourself struggling with motivation, consider something like this list. And if you if you add some of your own thoughts to it and have a few extra categories or you want to take some of ours out because you don't like them, that's great. That's fine. But consider this list and, and then ask yourself, okay, so I'm having a hard time being motivated right now. Which of these might be the source or, or usually it's more than one, by the way, it's rarely ever just one thing in isolation. Um, which of these might be a miss and what can I do then? I just gave you some ideas of things that help connect those dots. What can I do to create a better sense of belonging? People like me do this thing. I need to find people like me doing this thing and identify and identify with them and do it. Uh, so yes, uh, find the thing, the area, and then consider how can I do something differently within that area. And if you do that, I have a sneaking suspicion it may help when you're in periods of unmotivated or demotivated time. All right, so now let's get on to the world of running. So many good things to talk about in the world of running today. Let's start with some A to Z runner updates, news from our group and the things that people are doing that we support. So Aaron participated in the Margie Gisick, Gisick, Margie Gisick 100 miler. Brutal. It's a mountain bike and a running race. There's two, two options. Well, there's a few options. Um, crazy difficult. Nice work, Aaron, giving it a valiant effort. Nolan ran a 100 mile stage race, multi-day stage race, and uh, just crushed it. Overall, did incredibly, various stages, was finishing top, you know, top three, top five, just wonderful results, but really just uh, an incredible event as well. RJ participated in the Stagecoach 100 mile, giving his first, his debut effort at a 100 mile race. Laura ran the Hudepole 14K, 14K, what a distance. What is that exactly too? 10K plus 4K, so it's like, nine-ish miles. <laughs> uh, the bridge run, uh, which is a uh, Michigan race, has a 10-mile, which is always loads of fun, and a 5K. And, and we had a number of people in that one. Dan Doug ran the 5K, finishing a big PR. Congrats, Doug. Very exciting. Addy ran the 10-mile. Andrew ran the 10-mile. Ben, CJ, Dano, who was first in his age group. Jacob ran a PR and third in his age group. Hannah and Kyle, who also ran a PR. Congrats, Mark, Sarah, and Shelby all ran in the 10-mile race. Um, and I was there too, and I ran in that one also because uh, I love that race. I run in that one almost every year. That's As a matter of fact, I, I was looking at it recently. That's the one race that I have run the most number of times of any race in the world. So that's kind of cool. All right, now, congrats to all the all the people doing all the things. First up on our global 
news list. Uh, number one, there were two world records set in one race by the same person. So check this out. This is the Transylvania 10K in Brasov, Romania. And uh, Kenyan Agnes Ngedic broke both the 5K and 10K women-only road records. Uh, and she did it in one race. She ran a 10K race and broke both records. So what happens here in this kind of situation is she just started really fast. Uh, her first mile was 4.30, which is, if you're doing the math, 14 flat 5K pace. That's world record track 5K pace. And she started her road 10K on that pace. I don't know what's going on here, except for that maybe she was uh, shooting for both records anyway. But so uh, she was by herself. It didn't take more than a, a couple miles at most before she was solo, ran the last four miles totally by herself. Uh, not surprising at a pace like that. She came through 10K in 29.24, which is the second fastest time ever recorded by a woman, period. And the only one who's run faster is Yelam Zerf Yehuala of Ethiopia. And Yehuala ran it in a mixed race. And so she had the benefit of being able to run with men as well. So she wasn't just by herself. Ran 29.14, so it was a 10 seconds faster. Um, and it should be noted that Yehuala has also run um, 29, 19 as well. So <laughs> she's done it a couple times, but, uh, this is the second fastest person. Um, and the only, the only time a woman has run that fast in a women's only race. And then the also came through 5k in fourteen twenty five, which is brutal, blazing fast, um, broke Ethiopia's Senberry to fairies women only record, which was only set a couple of years ago, four seconds faster than that record. And Teferi, I believe, set it in a 5K race, not in a 10K race. So that's just what, what people do sometimes. Agnes Nagedic, she's 22 years old, won bronze in 2023 World Cross Country Championships. She's, uh, she's certainly got some accolades, but here she's adding to that list substantially. Next up, and this is going to be the only other one here because it's going to take the whole rest of our time, um, was the Diamond League Series finals the the diamond league is all the global track events that happen across the summer well it's like may through september there's tons of them they're all over the world and we've been reporting on that you you probably got sick of us talking about diamond league at some point except for that it was just so exciting that you didn't get sick of it at all but this is the last one this is the the championship and the way they do this there's a number of things you need to know that are very interesting first as the location of the championship it changes I don't know how often. I don't know if it's every year, but it changes. It moves around. So this year it was at the Prefontaine Classic, which is in Eugene, Oregon, in the United States. The first time ever the Diamond League final has been in the United States. And um, and the Prefontaine Classic is usually in May. So they moved the meet to September because it's the Diamond League final, which means it should it needs to be at the end of the Diamond League series, uh, which is September. So they moved the meet uh, to a different time of the year and then held the Diamond League Championship. Very exciting stuff. And then beyond that, what happens here is that there's a series of events that are considered diamond events for that season, for that track season. And that means they're contested throughout the season. Not every meet has every event. That's one of the important things to remember about Diamond League. Each meet is basically about two, uh, two to three hours max um, because they only feature certain events at each time. And then... In the championship, they have all of those events. And so it's a two-day meet. This, In this case, the pre-classic was a Saturday and a Sunday meet. And within that, 
you have to qualify for the Diamond League Finals within that event based on your performances throughout the series. So you have to run in at least some of the races, finish well enough in them to get some points for the Diamond League, and then if you have enough points, you get to run in the Finals. There are two stipulations beyond that where people can run in the Diamond League Finals um, and in any of the Diamond League meets, uh, as it were, but... They have a national wild card and a global wild card option. So the the meet host, in this case, it's uh, the Prefontaine Classic, can select up to, it's like two. There's only a couple people they can do this with. Up to like two men and two women that they can allow to run in races who were not actually qualified to run in that race based on their Diamond League performances. And that's going to be relevant because there were a couple instances of some really exciting results for individuals who were... Uh, in that category now the last thing you need to know is that the winner of each diamond league event and there's you know a, a, quite a few of them over the course of the two days the winner of each diamond league event is then awarded as well as the trophy a thirty thousand dollar cash bonus which is exciting okay now never <laughs> never mind the fact that these are the world's finest track athletes and the best they do is a thirty thousand dollar cash bonus for winning you know we're, we're talking about sports where people are getting million dollar contract anyway okay i'm i'm done talking about that all right so let's talk about the events here we go women's steeplechase was one of the first ones up and it was exciting so we had the world champion winfred yavi against world record holder beatrice chepkwich is basically a rematch after the world championships and then all the other greats were in the race so it was just it was heavy heavy duty and i have to say yavi and chepkwich is a battle that i won't mind watching over and over because those two are just going at it. And it happens to be that, like she did in the World Championships, Yavi of Bahrain was again the victor. And this time running even faster. Her World Championship time was blazing. She ran the fastest, second fastest steeplechase time ever run. Next to only Beatrice Chepkoic, who finished in second, who also holds the world record. And by the way, prior to this race, Beatrice Chepkoic had run eight seconds faster than the next fastest time ever run and yavi got a little bit chipped a little bit more time off of that got a little closer she ran 850 next to the 844 uh world record that chepkwetch holds and i gotta say chepkwetch fought her every step of the way she just really did everything she could to do it and even got to the water pit and tried to at the final this is the final curve 150 meters out goes over the water pit and tries to like do the jump across the water as fast as she can and get in front before you come around the curve, which is a great strategy, by the way, in the steeplechase. Um, and she just couldn't quite get around her, and so Yavi held her off in the curve and then continued to uh, outkick her in the finish. And then, uh, should be noted, Yavi also did run as the second fastest time. It's an Asian record as well as a new national record for Bahrain. Incredible. Faith Chirotich, by the way, of Kenya was in third and also ran under nine minutes. And I don't know how many times in the history of time this has happened, but it might not be more than this time where three women were under nine minutes in one race in the steeplechase. Incredible. Very fast. All right. Men's 800 is next up. And in this one in particular was once again, similarly, a kind of rematch scenario from the world championships. We had Marco Arap, the defending world champion now coming out uh well he's not the defending world champion because this is not the world championships but he's the world champ um coming out to show that he's still got it emmanuel wanyani of kenya who has the fastest time in the world 
trying to challenge him again. And it just so happens to be this time when Yanyi upsets Arap to win the race in the now fastest time of the season, the first time this year that any man has run under 143 in the 800, which is crazy. But Marco Arap, even in second place, his consolation prize was he still set a new Canadian record, which is just amazing. When Yanyi did run a meeting record, by the way, as well for the pre-classic. Now, next up is what I feel like is like the headliner for the meet. Um, in many ways, the Bowerman Mile is like the flagship event for the pre-classic every year. And so this is one of those few and rare occasions where you get a world-class race running a mile distance instead of a 1,500 distance. Um, but, you know, they're largely the same event, so it's the same people doing it. And uh, in this case here, Jacob Ingebrigtsen, back in peak form, after setting the 2,000-meter world record, uh, just was that last weekend, uh, he comes back here, and in the press conference, the press conference was hilarious ahead of time. So they're like, you know, are you going to break the world record? And he's he's like, ah, oh, we're, we're not really talking about it as much. It wasn't hyped up. Um, at one point, Yara Nagus is in the press conference. He, he comes up, and Jacob Ingebrigtsen's like, hey, man, just stick with me as long as you can, and you'll run the under one under 346, which is he's trying to run the American record. And so, you know, Ingebrigtsen's just being what he is, um, which is uh, just, you know, uh, well, anyway, I don't need to clarify that. You, you can see from the comment. Um, but the point is, is Nagus was like, I'm ready to do this thing, and that's really exciting. We heard some rumblings ahead of time that a number of people believed he was going to be setting the American record in this race, which should be really exciting. Very cool stuff. That's a 16-year-old record at that. Well, how did the race unfold? Inga Britson did what he does, which is just run fast, and it doesn't matter if anyone's with him or not. He's just going to do it. Nagus latched onto Ingebrigtsen and did not let him go. And this is this is the crazy moment here. Uh, because those of you who saw when Hicham El-Gurush set the current world record, 343.1 something, in that race, the race was for him. It was set up for him to try to break the world record. And Kenya's Noah Nageni latched onto him and somehow miraculously held on the whole way and it this was like a it was deja vu watching Jacob and Yared here in this race and then the whole time I'm thinking if anyone who's watched that other race you're like this looks familiar and so the Pacers drop out fairly early and then it's just Jacob grinding plowing ahead and Yared will not let him go just is like a pure willpower so Nagus holds on sticks with Jacob Ingebrigtsen to the point where he gets to the 100 meters to go and actually swings wide to make an effort to try to pass Ingebrigtsen. And all of this with the pace lights set at world record pace. So they missed it. <laughs> the conclusion is they missed it only barely. And so Jacob ran the, the third fastest mile race ever yard Nagoose ran the fourth fastest of all time three seconds faster than the previous american record three seconds that's insanity prior to this race only two men had ever run under 344 now the, these two just did it in one race the only other time it happened was when the other two i mentioned lg and nageni ran in the same race together as well and so some serious deja vu there just incredible Ingebrigtsen ran 343.73, Yared 343.97. So you can see that, two tenths behind him. 
what a race. What a race. I don't even know how to describe it. It was so incredible. Um, so that's, by the way, of course, a uh, North American record for Yard and Goose as well, and a European record and Norwegian record for Ingebrigtsen, um, which is j- just astounding. Nearly four seconds back was third place, George Mills of Great Britain, who also ran blazing fast. You know, don't discount it. Um, just It just didn't happen to be a British record or anything. So then uh, in fourth place, Mario Garcia of Spain ran a new Spanish record, 347.69. And then after that, Renan Chariot of Kenya, who's 19, ran a U-20 world record in 348.0, breaking it by like almost two seconds, which is just it, the idea that an under-20-year-old runs that fast. I don't know how anyone's going to break that. Well, maybe Niels Laros will because he's still 18 and almost ran just as fast in this race. Azadine Hobbs of France also broke uh, his national record. Niels Laros, I just mentioned, uh, 348.93, which would have been a World U20 record, except that Chariot was ahead of him. Um, He still set a Netherlands uh, Dutch record, which is incredible. And he's 18 years old, only barely. And so he's got more time to stab at some of those World U20 records. As it goes, USA's Cole Hawker, by the way, ran the fourth fastest U.S. time ever, which is he's just Cole Hawker has had a great season. And it, it took him a while to get to that point because he was coming off an injury and such. But um, it, it, the fact remains that if Yard Nagus weren't just like storming through the world stage, Cole Hawker would be someone we'd be talking about in U.S. Miler uh, conversations. But. Uh, he's doing great, and that was that was an impressive race. Um, of the 13 finishers, by the way, 11 of the 13 ran personal best times. Six ran some kind of record, which is crazy. This marks, by the way, the deepest mile race of all time. 11 men finished under 350. Let that sink in. 11 men in a single race ran under 350 for a full mile. The previous best was six in one race. So it nearly doubled it. Wow. Okay. Well, it still was better. It still got better after that. So let's let's talk about the women's 5,000 meters now. The next day, women ran the 5,000 meters and Gudaf Sige of Ethiopia told them, set the pace lights on world record pace. I'm breaking it. I'm breaking Faith Kipiegan's fresh new record. It's only set two months ago. So Gudaf Sige does exactly that, goes out on world record pace, but she's not alone. Beatrice Chibet of Kenya, who's the bronze medalist from the world championships, world cross country champion, um, she goes with her. And she, I to her credit, she stayed for a long time. She almost held through the whole time. But here's the thing. Gudaf Sige just did a thing that people would have said no way was that possible. She ran 14 minutes flat, 0.2, in the 5,000 meters. And Kara Goucher was announcing she was so hoping she was going to break 14. Everyone was hoping that, but just so sure it was going to happen. She was so close, which just tells you now, of course, someone's going to do it and probably not very long before it happens. Good up, Sige was 14th by the way at the world championships um she she noted that she was not healthy for the world championships but coming back from that now to break the world record faith kip yegan's world record by five seconds just take taking a chunk off of it and then behind her beatrice beatrice chibet ran the third fastest time 
all time, very nearly faster than Faith Kipiegon's world record to run 1405.92. So here's the here's the thing. Um, the previous, in, in the history of the 5,000, uh, the world record of 1411 lasted for 12 years when it was set. And then in 2020, Letezembet Gide of Ethiopia broke it. And then a few years later, Faith Kipiegon broke that record and Gudafsige broke Faith Kipiegon's record in the same year. And at this point now, four women in five performances have all run under 1410. And so it took 12 years for that record to get broken. And now five women in the last few years have all run faster or five instances because good FC or let's Gide has done it twice. <laughs> but this is, this is what we're talking about. The caliber of running right now. Oddly enough though, I have to say this is a very strange situation because it rarely happens, but behind those two, there was basically just nothing notable about the rest of the performances. Uh, no personal best, no season best. Um, it was almost like the two kind of ran away from everyone else and, and, and the race behind them just kind of, became a non-race uh, in a sense. Well, I don't want to discredit the women's performances there because they were still uh, running admirably by all senses. But, you know, measuring against their own performances, they weren't doing anything, you know, super special for them individually, which is fascinating because usually in a race that is, you know, a world record type performance that they tend to pull people along. Okay, women's 800 next up on the block and... This was everything we hoped that the world championships would be in terms of the caliber of race. Um, and all the rematches came back together. And so here's how it goes. Mary Mora, world champion, is here. Keely Hodgkinson is here, who gets silver and everything. And, and uh, Natoya Gould-Toppin, uh, Jamaica's star. And, uh, and as it goes, a thing Mo is back. Now, I say that surprisingly because a thing Mo did not compete in the Diamond League this year. Um, so she didn't have any qualification status, but she was allowed in on one of those uh, those waivers that I mentioned, the national uh, national wildcard waiver in this instance. What that means is the meet hosts can choose two people total in the entire meet that they can say, all right, even though that person's not qualified, we are saying that person can compete and they have to meet certain criteria. So they can't just be anyone, you know, I can grab this random athlete and say, yeah, I'm going to throw them in the race. No, they have to like, you know, be a world champion, recent world champion, um, world record holder. You know, they have to like have all these accolades, right? National champion, I think is one of them. So I think Mo clearly qualifies under those standards. You know, she is uh, the defending Olympic champion still in the event. Um, so as it were, she's in the race and we're really glad she was because whatever a thing Mo wished she would have done at the world championships, she did here in the diamond league final. And so it, as it goes, it's, you know, Keely Hodgkinson's plowing away. Mary Mora's up there, aggressive contending and a thing Mo in the final home stretch has something special suddenly and she's she's grinding and then starts surging ahead again and passes Keely Hodgkinson and holds her off at the line by two tenths of a second to win the race in a new American record time of 154.97 
which by the way is only like six hundredths faster than her previous American record. But the fact that she did it and she did it in the same meet that she set the previous American record is itself kind of special. So I think Mo wins the race, wins the Diamond League final, even though she wasn't even a part of the Diamond League circuit, put, puts it together, runs an American record. Keely Hodgkinson finishes second again. I, just, I feel for her. She's second so much. Mary Mora, oddly enough, with about 100 meters to go, just disappeared. She just like went backwards so fast. It was a little bit shocking. Um, and so, you know, a tough moment. I don't know exactly why, but uh, so she struggled. She ended up finishing, I believe, fourth or fifth. But in third was Natoya Gould-Toppin, who ran a new Jamaican national record as well. Oh, I forgot to mention that Keely Hodgkinson did run a new British record. <laughs> so, I think Mo pulled her two record all the same. Uh, and the first three then all ran national records for an incredible three place finish. And the last thing I wanted to mention, which is just very strange is that because Mo was on a national wild card, not on a legitimate or not legitimate, but not on a standard qualification, they don't pay the full prize money to her, which I think is weird. Like on, on what, grounds can you say well because you didn't qualify the same way as everyone else you don't deserve as much money if you win it but didn't she still just win the race and and isn't that why you're paying the prize money because these people are you know performing at such a high level and you're trying to award high level performance anyway i don't know what the motivation is there except that i think it's a little bit silly but let's talk about the next one so it just continues to go because then the men's 3000 kind of wraps it up for us here um there was a men's steeple chase in there I, I i didn't talk about it because it it was um uh, an underwhelming race but in the men's open 3000 this took the place of the men's 5000 and it's very strange i don't know why uh, but what apparently happened yamaf kajelcha of ethiopia said that they told him like a week before that they decided to do 3,000 instead of 5,000. I find that to be very strange. Um, also, especially strange because, you know, these athletes are preparing for like this major competition and you just tell them, ah, we're going to do a different race though. Because a 5,000 and a 3,000 are not the same thing. <laughs> so at all for runners, I don't think that was cool, but that's what it ended up being. And uh, lo and behold, returning from his first day where he's just, you know, trounced all over the mile. Jacob Ingebrigtsen's back again. And the reason he's in the race is another wild card scenario because Ingebrigtsen did not run a single 5,000 in the Diamond League. Um, he ran all 1,500s in the Diamond League. Uh, but being, you know, a world champion, he is the 5,000 meter world champion, right? Uh, also being a world record holder in multiple events this year. So they can say, all right, he gets a global wild card. Um, so once again, if he wins the race, he gets less money than someone else who might win it. But, uh, you know, why would we pay attention to things like that? Um, so Ingebrigtsen, Yamaf Kajelcha, we've got the other, the other, uh, Ethiopian contingent that has been dominating the 5,000 Salomon Borrega, uh, Terry Hubekele and, uh, Aragawi are all there. U USA's Grant Fisher's in the race, um, having you know having minimal but certainly some success in the diamond league as well so and louis grialva of guatemala so we've got all these big names right and jenga britson just does what he always does though doesn't it just doesn't matter he just wants to run fast all the time that's what he wants to do so yesterday you know the day before rather he ran uh the third fastest mile time ever 
So he decides, you know what? Let's do that again. Runs the third fastest 3,000 meter time ever to barely out lean Yamif Kajelcha. Kajelcha was coming on fast. And Ingebrigtsen got him because his shoulder was twisted a little farther forward is what it looks like in the picture. Beats Kajelcha by one hundredth of a second. So they finish in the third and fourth fastest times in the 3,000 meters in all history. Crazy performances. So for in two days, Ingebrigtsen runs uh, top three world all-time performances in two different events. That's crazy. New European and Norwegian record. Also a new Diamond League record. Um, Kajelcha ran a new Ethiopian record uh, because those top two finishers are Kenya, uh, the, t- the first and second all time, are Kenya and Morocco. So now uh, Kajelcha runs a new Ethiopian record. And then in third place, the surprise third place finisher, Grant Fisher, with just this amazing finish, ends up third in a new United States and North American record three seconds off his own previous record to run 725. Just incredible performance. Should be noted, by the way, he his outdoor record, 728, um, is actually slower than the indoor record that Yard Nagus currently holds. 728.2 is Yard's record. 728.4 was Fisher's. But now he's, you know, he's run the fastest all around 3,000 uh, because he ran 725. So that's crazy. He also outkicked some of the world's finest runners and some of the world's finest kickers in the process. And it just tells you something there because I have to say that in reviewing Grant Fisher's career so far, this is, this race now marks his best international contest yet to date and that is really exciting that was really cool to see so great job grant always fun to watch you race and then louis grialva ran a new guatemalan national record as well in seventh place for 729 dipping under 730 his first time what a performance here it is so many exciting things we enjoyed the track season immensely here at eight is he running and we hope you did too that's it track is done the Diamond League final is always the end of the track season officially. So we're going to be talking about things like some road races. There's tons of exciting fall racing, Berlin Marathon, Chicago Marathon, both coming up very soon. We're going to be reporting on that and so much more. And so you don't want to miss it. You want to stick around uh, as we not only have more exciting things to talk about, but also here shortly begin year five of the A to Z running podcast. We'll have more to say about that soon remember to share your questions because next week we're answering them on air go to a to z running.com slash question ask anything about your running training experiences and otherwise and we will answer them we look forward to the time and we will talk to you next week